On this week's episode, we talk about the black experience. What does it mean to be black in America? Now, you know, they always say black people are not a monolith and that we're all different, that we are diverse, unless you're Joe Biden and he says, you know, you ain't black if you don't vote for him. Anyway, moving on to the topic of the episode. So I am coming from the perspective of being a black immigrant, somebody that was born in Jamaica that now lives in the United States versus my friend Adriana Miller. She grew up in the United States. And so we share both of our experiences of what it means to us to be black. And just like the conversation just flowed so naturally, it flowed so great. And we just had a great discussion. So even though we might have disagreed on certain things, it was like, there was just such a great conversation and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's just get right into the episode. everybody welcome to the simply mishka podcast and today we have a guest on the podcast her name is adriana miller and i'm just gonna have adriana kind of like introduce herself all right hey everyone so as mishka said my name is adriana miller i am a native of cleveland ohio i live in the united states and i'm just learned that my good friend mishka is from jamaica so that's pretty awesome um, I am a singer as well as a songwriter. I am also a music major working to obtain my degree in music education so that I can teach. I am also a big advocate in the community for mental health, um, especially among the black communities. And sometimes when um, the opportunity allows, I'm a big advocate for just um, rights for African-Americans as a whole. So I'm really excited about this podcast and I cannot wait. Yeah, and I'm really excited to to um for you guys to hear this because like it was like a few weeks ago we had like this conversation, um like about like the perspective of what it means to be black in America, and it's like there's such a difference between somebody like like a that's a black immigrant. So for me, I would I'm a black immigrant. So I was not born in the United States. I was born in Jamaica, and I moved to the U.S. when I was 11. But you were born in America, so I feel like there's kind of like a different perspective of how certain people see things, whether they're born in a country or they're not. So it's just kind of like you know, let's kind of like see what each other's perspective is on like certain things and certain issues, and um. As like okay, so I just kind of like want to learn more about like your experience of of what it kind of like what it was growing up as a black person in America, like what your experience was, like the ups and the downs, and the good and the so, bad. So um, I really think I want to start with the education. Um, mm-hmm. Growing up as a black girl in America, um, being taught about how things started for black people in America. Um, It's honestly very contradicting Mm -hmm. to the things that I know now. So the very first lesson that you learn about yourself as a black person in in the books in the United States is that we started off as slaves. Um, We are told that we started Mm -hmm. off being controlled and basically in a way indentured servants to um, Caucasian people. We lived on these plantations. We wore... 
um, clothes that were either too big or too small, mostly too big, just really kind of thrown together things that we were allowed to wear. We picked cotton, tobacco, um, and different other crops to make in so many ways the white man richer um, because even now, tobacco, cotton, and things of that nature are big money makers in the United States. Um, and somewhere as early as maybe the, you know, hundreds of years ago, I think maybe the 1600s, um, something of that nature, we actually started off mm-hmm. being brought over from a different country into the United States and forced mm-hmm. to be slaves to these people who lived in these beautiful homes, these beautiful mansions. And we lived in little shacks. Um, the women, um, which was really difficult for me to learn at a young age, um, the black women, and even sometimes the teenage girls were raped by the slave masters. Um And they were forced to nurse the children of the master's wives. So where the babies of our children, we weren't able to nurse. We weren't able to breastfeed them because we were forced to use a lot of our milk to feed the babies of the slaves' wives. Um, The men were also raped. Mm -hmm. Um, And if the men in any way, shape, or form ever tried to protect us, they were either raped, they were beat, or they were killed. At any given moment, if you talk back to your slave master, you either were risking your back being beat or your life. Um, And I can honestly say that that probably caused a lot of friction between Black men and Black women because where we would have desire to be protected, they weren't even able to. So this mm-hmm. caused friction and possibly even mm-hmm. resentment between Black men and Black women. And I do believe in things such as post-traumatic stress disorder and generational curses that trickle down. And now sometimes Black men and Black women don't like each other and they don't even know why. They won't communicate with each other. They just are mm-hmm. automatically viewing each other as enemies. They're actually waiting for someone to do something wrong because our cutoff game is strong. And then we don't realize that mm-hmm. it stems from us not feeling protected earlier on in those years from our ancestors and they weren't allowed to protect us. Then protecting us risked their lives. Then protecting us cost their lives. Um, and the ones who did just didn't live to probably see the next day or they were separated from us um, so that they could no longer have the ability to um, take to take care of or take up for us. Um, we were also taught mm-hmm this thing called the difference between, and I know that this is a very, um, very sensitive term, but there was always the difference between the house nigga and the field nigga. And if you listen to some of mm-hmm. Jay-Z, Jay-Z songs, he actually speaks on it at the beginning of one song in particular that I like by him. Um, and growing up, I also actually was in a way a victim of colorism. Um, I grew up as a darker girl. Mm-hmm. I'm still a dark girl. I'm really melanated. Um, I'm, um, some would say I'm of cinnamon, kind of a chocolate complexion. Um, and I used to wonder why I was always made fun of in connection to the lighter girls. Um, and I'm not saying that that just because it happened then that it had to happen now, but it is definitely a mentality that is ha- that has been instilled into our heads because um if you trace it back to slavery times, colorism was a thing. The lighter skinned black people were able to live in the homes of the slaves and help serve and cook their food. And because they were more fair skinned, they were more easy on the eyes and things of that nature where the darker people had to stay out in the sun because it was almost a disgrace to be dark skinned. Um, 
And this caused even more friction later because now you have another area where blacks are not getting along. Because if you're light, you're obviously pretty and you're dark, you're obviously ugly. And well, these two people obviously can't be friends, right? Because one is one is is known to be popular or prettier or more accepted by society. And the other one is not. Um, So learning these things. Yeah, I think that is. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I was gonna say like I think like, it's kind of like yeah. universal because like in Jamaica, like every mostly almost everybody is black, and it's like the there is there is not really there's not racism, but there's colorism, and I feel like in a lot of even when you go to Africa or if you go to like a Caribbean country, it's always as if those people that are lighter. It's like they do get treated a little bit better. They get treated a little bit as a little bit different. Like everybody's aim, like people like bleaching their skins and things like that. Because I remember, I think I told you about it. Like people like bleaching their skin to be lighter, stuff like that, because they don't want to be dark. It's like it almost makes it seem like being darker skinned is um, that there's something wrong with it, you know. But yeah, continue with what you're going to say. Oh, yeah. No. And it's it's good to know that because I think that especially like um, when you are dealing with people who aren't from this country, it can sometimes be very easy to kind of just brush them off as if, well, you don't know what we go through because you haven't lived here. But this is a perfect example of you being someone from Jamaica and actually experiencing colorism um, because that's a real thing. And it doesn't just happen in the United States. It's very prominent here. But to know that you went through that is like it even allows for us to kind of bridge the gap between us and what some would call foreigners, um, people from other countries, mm-hmm. to know that sometimes the very thing that we think is just um, an, an American thing could, could, as you say, be a universal thing. Um, so my experiences with racism was first things first is I am being taught in this book that I'm the scum of the earth before I may even be old enough to say my name spell my name. And that is that is like almost in some form, way or shape brainstorming because we never learned about who we were before racism. That's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning of our race. That's the beginning of our identity. That's the beginning of our culture. And we're never taught about being treated like royalty and kings and queens and actually in our um, native country uh, to an extent because there are a such thing as Africans as well as African-Americans, but the native part of us to an extent um, being royalty, being leaders, being um, um, kingdom growers, and then coming into this place where we're used to being treated like the best thing um, in our surroundings to now being the lowest. Um that can be, mm-hmm. I can only imagine how that felt for our ancestors who, where their skin was initially, the darker it was, the better it was, the, the darker it was, the more rich it was. They they viewed us as a, an actual representation of nature and earth. And then we get pulled from the, our place where we are enjoying life to a place where now we have to build for everyone else and and make everyone else feel good. And like I said, at, at, at nine and 10 years old, learning that this is my history. This is how it started for me. This is how it started for my parents. My grand, my great grandmother picked cotton. So it was like, that is so close to comfort to know that she had to pick cotton to make ends meet, to, to, to provide for her home. Um, 
and work for the white lady next door yes. and would get paid little to nothing and be. Mm-hmm. And if she did something wrong, was called out her name. Now, that's not as extreme as what they had in actual slavery. But as things slowed down, it was like we're still not being treated the way we should be treated. So learning that at a young age was the first part of slavery. And then I learned about Emmett Till, which was like. Oh, a yes. really, really, really difficult mm-hmm. thing. I'm grateful that they didn't teach it to us at nine and ten years old. But by the time 14 and 15 hit, I'm learning about Emmett Till as a guy who had a speech impediment and, you know, was who knows uh, what was actually going on at that moment. But it was told that he was whistling with his friends and the white lady thought that he was mm-hmm. whistling at her and went and told her husband and he killed that boy. He beat him and shot him in the face. And this was something that was just okay. This man didn't go to prison. He was not charged. And then, sad to say, now as a 26-year-old woman, I hear that that very woman admitted to the public before dying that Emmett Till never did that. Oh, yes. I heard that. That is devastating. That's absolutely crazy. If I'm not mistaken. Yes, like all these years. all these years she says this. And granted, I know that she did that for her soul. I have no particular hate towards white people. I pray that that one confession sent her to heaven. However, it does not stop the fact that years later, there was a woman who never got to see her son again because he was killed by another white Mm -hmm. person because of a lie. That's devastating. That's mentally draining and debilitating. And there was no justice for him. Yeah. Which is. So then, you know, you're you're not just growing up and hearing how it is in slavery, but you're seeing how it happens now with colorism. And then you're learning about a boy who at the time was my age. Um being um, penalized by with his life for something that he did not do. Um, and there was, you know, and yeah. then there are things that happened where, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that as children, we have all went into a candy store and took something that we didn't pay for. I, you know, I've taken a Snickers mm-hmm. before and there was a boy who did that. And I cannot think of his name right now. And he received a death penalty. So it's like those kinds of things, you know, I'm I'm going inside of a store and, oh, I want this and I don't have the money. Oh, where I got home, I may have gotten spanked or my mom would have actually made me go back to the store and give it back to the owner and apologize to teach me something about morals and integrity. This boy lost his life. Um, And these. Yeah, I think um, for me, because, you know, like how you were talking about Emmett Till. Like, I remember, like, when I first moved to the U.S., like, because we have to learn, like, I think either what, seventh or eighth grade, we take, like, um American history. And I remember learning about Emmett Till for the first time, and that absolutely blew my mind. Because, like, for me, like, because I remember I was telling you, like, before, like, how whatever I knew about America was basically what I saw from Disney Channel or from Nickelodeon. So it's like, when I moved here... It's like I'm expecting things to kind of like be like how I see it on TV. And then I get into history class and I'm learning about Emmett Till. I'm like, wait, I'm learning about like the Little Rock Nine. I'm learning about like, oh, there was segregation. I'm learning about MLK. Like all these things that I never knew before, like learning about Rosa Parks and all these kind of things. And I'm just like, what? (laughs) This is what happened in America? Like I did, like my mind was just like, because it's like that image that I had of what America was like. It was just my, it was just, it was like a wake up call for me. It was just, uh, wow. I I just couldn't believe it. I think that having a conversation like this, I think it's important in order to bridge that gap because you came from a place where you got very little, if, if little to no information about what it was like to be a black person in America. 
compared to what it was like Mm -hmm. to learn just really the nature of your culture. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's exactly what happened to Black Americans. You know, we went into school learning about the nature of our culture based on the um, reflection from a United States spectrum. We didn't learn our culture Mm -hmm. based on an African spectrum, based on the foreign spectrum. We learned it based on the spectrum of what happened once we got to the United States. So you come into the United States, you learned how it was to be a black person from the United States, where in Jamaica, you learned how it was Mm -hmm. to be a black person from a Jamaican standpoint. So there is so much that we really don't even know because, you know, where we could even say, we could even limit this to just black people, but there are, um, there are, Asians and Indians who are dealing with some form of slavery or indentured servitude. Um, Native Americans are dealing with it in some way, shape or form. Um, And if we limit it to just um, if we limit it to just the African-American spectrum, we actually won't see justice. We'll just see partial justice. Um, And I believe a free world is when everyone truly sees justice. When something wrong is done, there's a penalty for it. When something. When something right is done, there is praise for it. And there's levels to the penalty based on what you've done. So we're not throwing a 20-year sentence on one person and a two-year sentence on another. This is the sentence for this crime. That's what it will be for anyone across the board. So now these people know that I need to do right, not just for my own soul and for my own conscious purpose, but because I'm going to pay the same penalty as this person. And we don't see that, which brings me to the next thing that we see a lot here in the African here in America, African-Americans are known to get three times the sentence of, of, of its white counterparts. So there was a young gentleman, um, and I'm actually going to try to find his name for you right now. Um, yeah. So while you're um, looking for that, like, what are some other factors? Because in terms of like when it's um, time for somebody to get arrested or go to prison and things like that. What are some other factors that would kind of like, you know, make them have a higher prison sentence? Like have they, is it, are they a first time offender? Does that affect like how much time they spend? Like how many times have they been in and out of prison? Stuff like that. So it's like, I kind of like want to learn about that. Yeah. So if you're a first offender, naturally your sentence will be lighter depending on the crime you committed. So Let's say you mm-hmm. get a shoplifting charge. You may only get a fine. Um, but let's say you get a drug charge. You may get one to three years or a gun charge. You get one to three years. But the second offense for the same thing, well, the second offense for being a shoplifter, a shoplifter now you may actually get a year in prison compared to that fine. Your second offense um, selling illegal drugs, you may get three to five years. And your second offense with a gun, Um domestic violence and things of that nature, the more times you do it, now what happens is you come across judges who may just say, and this is, I'm not even talking about race in this moment. I'm talking about you doing Mm -hmm. something and then doing it again. Um, Now they will most likely put you in front of the same judge that sentenced you first. And now that judge is a little frustrated. Well, I gave you a light sentence this time, or I didn't give you a sentence at all. And you didn't do anything. You didn't do anything to try to change your life. Well, I'm a little frustrated uh-huh. with you now, and I think you need a little bit more time to think about how when you come out the second time, you'll do something better. Um, and then, of course, you know what the funny thing is? <laughs> that kind of reminds me. Have you ever seen that Medea movie, Medea Goes to Jail? Yeah. <laughs> and like when you're talking about Medea, you're here again. Oh, my goodness. She was like, it kind of reminds me of that scene. Listen, 
she got so tired and was like, you know what, just give her five years. I'm I'm over it. I'm tired of seeing her face. Get her out my courtroom. She was so tired. Yes. <laughs> but then she's like, you ain't learned nothing yet. Like, yes, exactly. You see something similar to that where, you know, and like I said, that's not race. That's just, that woman was tired. Medea just didn't care. And she was like, well, you got to catch me first. And well, she got caught and now you're going to do this time. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. And mm-hmm. I would love for Medea to be my grandma. Somehow, some way, she always got bail money. Somebody do something wrong to me, they she don't get them together. <laughs> like I get my yeah. grandma always in jail, but don't don't hit me. She gonna find a way out. She gonna she gonna sneak out just to get you. <laughs> mm. um, um. So man. now now what you do have, um, and and I'm actually gonna kind of bounce off of that in a moment. But the young gentleman's name mm-hmm. who uh, he raped an intoxicated woman. And she was unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually had four counts of rape. Sorry, five. Rape of an intoxicated person. Oh, wow. Rape of an unconscious person. Sexual penetration of an unconscious woman. Sexual pen- penetration of an intoxicated woman. And assault with intent to commit rape. And his name was Brock Turner. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people, like especially in where I live in Cleveland, Ohio, we were really, really frustrated. This happened in um, California. Um, his name was Brock Turner, but he was um, very athletic in school. He was very involved um, in, athlete, in athletics in his school. So the judge did not give him a sentence because she felt as if he has such a bright future ahead of him. I'm not going to put him in prison for something that could later ruin his life. But then we later. Mm-hmm. Well, how old um was he when all of this happened? At the time, he was nineteen. He was 19. nineteen years old, so he was at the age of um being able to be tried as an adult. But he was in college, mm-hmm. so and he um and then you hear about a situation where there was another man who had the same sentence, and he's looking at you know, sometimes from five to 10 years. And I want to keep stopping to search the names um, because I can't think of the guy's name at the time. Um, But, you know, we see this exact same situation um, happening to a white person and a black person and the sentences are way more extreme. My concern is that Brock Turner didn't get time and the other gentleman got time at all. I feel like both of them should have gotten time. And this is not to say that what the black man did was wrong, but it is to say that justice in this moment was that this man raped a woman who is now traumatized for the rest of her life or something that she had no control over. Both of you need to understand that that is not okay. Um, and you know what, too, um, what I was thinking about, because, you know, like when it comes to the justice system, I also feel like the person that has the more more money and the better lawyer is more likely to get oh, off yeah. than the person that doesn't have those resources. Because it's like if you have like a what do you call them? A public defender. Yeah. The ones that you kind of. Yeah. So I feel like if you have a public defender that's not really invested in your case versus somebody that has money to kind of get them off, because I feel like money talks. And like, if you have the right type of lawyer, I feel like you're, it's easier for you to get off on something than if you're somebody that doesn't have the resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now that's also a real thing. So to me personally, I feel, and I could be wrong. This is just an opinion, but um, public defenders, they're not going to fight your case as much because they're paid for by the court system to just have someone to, to represent that person. 
um, because they're being paid for by the court system, it would make sense to say that their job is to also keep as much money in the court system's pocket as possible. So we're going to get you a lower, a possible lower, um, what's the word, charge, but you're still going to get charged. Where a lawyer who's being paid, like people who have family lawyers who like pay a lawyer monthly, where if something happens, that man has an influx of money to come and say, I'm going to do the best I can for you to not be charged at all. And if you, if it is absolutely impossible, the lowest amount is possible. I'm going to work day in and day out where a public defender in so many ways is doing a nine to five. I remember getting into a car accident one day and I only had my temporary permit. I didn't have my driver's license. My public defender didn't even know my case until that day. I walked in the courtroom and he was like, you're Adriana, right? And it was like, wait, this isn't even the person I talked to a week ago. <laughs> it was a whole other person. He knew mm-hmm. nothing about my case. And granted, he got me off with a fine. I could have gotten a whole lot more worse. You know, they could have suspended a license that I didn't even have. He got me off with like a $300 fine. But this man had knew nothing about me. Like, you know, it is a difference between someone who has the money to pay for a lawyer. And that also is not a race thing. That really is just based on what you may have monetarily. Um, now, when it comes to the other boy, the other guy, I did find his name. His name is Corey Beatty. And both of these men were college athletes who raped an unconscious woman. Um, and Corey Bailey, um um actually has to serve a minimum of 15 to 25 years in prison. Where Brock Turner oh, wow. did the exact same thing and is out free today as we speak. Are they both the same age? Did it around the both the same age? Both yep, 19? they were both 19. And that oh, wow. concerns that's just, that's us crazy. because it's like, I personally, if I was a judge, and I would love to be one if I could, I, I this is not something that I would want to go to school for. I would be going to school for something a little different, but it'll be something that can help my black community. But if I was a judge, I would look at them both the same. Both of you did something wrong and both of you have to pay for that. And yes, you are my black. You are my black in so many ways. You're my black connection. I know you to be a black man, but what you did was wrong. Um, if that woman was unconscious, by all means, sir, you are a a handsome quarterback. You could have any woman willingly that you want. Why go after an unconscious woman? Why you think that that's okay? You know what's one thing that I heard about? Um, there's something that they call decision fatigue. So it's like they say that a judge is able to make better decisions and the sentences are a lot lighter when it they have like a case that's like in the morning, like when they're like fresh and they're, oh, yeah. they're not, you know, tired. Yeah. But then later on in the afternoon when they get cases and it's just like they're tired, they don't want they're like their mind is probably like frazzled. The sentences tend to be a lot um heavier and a lot like more strict than versus like when they first got into the courtroom. So I think that also plays a factor into. And you want to know something? I can I can say that that's true. I remember that very same court case I had when I was driving without a license with a temporary permit. Um, Right before me, there was this guy who came in front of this judge and he got smart with her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she just made it hard for everybody else. Oh, my gosh, she was about to kick our butts. I was so scared because mm-hmm. this man is arguing with her in the courtroom. Like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. And I'm like, oh, my God. In that moment, I was like, oh, yeah, we all about to get it because he just made her mad. Like, she was real cool, calm. Like, she was just kind of throwing. There were a few people who had come to her, and I have seen this happen. There were people who had come to her before, and she was like, 
I don't understand why you keep coming in my courtroom and you keep doing the same thing. So yeah, we're just going to put you in mm-hmm. for another six months. I'm, I don't even want to have any, I literally didn't give him time to say a word, but there was this one guy who argued with her and it was like, well, he just made it bad for everyone after him. So I couldn't even see that being mm-hmm. a thing. Like, let's just be honest. They're judges. They hold these high positions, but they're human. Which is why I mm-hmm. feel like there should be a law that goes above the judge that says that this is the minimum sentence for a crime. This is the maximum sentence for a crime. This is the minimum for um, a violation that doesn't require time. And that is across the board for everyone, no matter how they look when they come in front of your face, no matter what happens. If they were to do that, honestly, it would make the judge's job a lot easier um, because this because mm-hmm. because these judges, I even think Brock Turner's judge got fired. Um it, 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 in a way, it preserves your job. Like, you don't have to worry about them saying, oh, you picked this person because they looked like you. Oh, the white judge looked out for the white man and, and white woman or the black judge looked out for the black man and black woman. The law system in connection to justice really needs some fine tuning because it was built on prejudice. Like the country was built on prejudice. It was built on racism. It was built on lack of fairness. Lack of equality. But I think um, I think that's probably like kind of like where we differ because I don't think the United States was built on racism or that it was built on prejudice. Because I feel like there's a something about the United States that has like this attraction for people. Like this is the land of dreams. This is the place that you go um, to make your dreams come true. Because there's millions and millions of millions of people that come to this country like every single year to make a life that's better for themselves. And, um, and you know what the craziest thing too, like even before we, um, were doing this podcast, I was looking up what is the median household income, um, for different ethnic groups in the U S. And the funny thing is that the Asian population is literally beating out every single person in every category. Like the, I think it was saying, but this was from, um, like I found this, it's uh, the sources from the U.S. Census Bureau from 2013 to 2015. And it says the medium household income in the United States by ethnic group. So the top group is Indian Americans, so um, people from India. Then you have Filipino Americans, then Taiwanese, then Sri Lankan Americans, then Japanese, then Malaysian, then Chinese, then Pakistani. Then you have the white Americans, then Korean, then Indonesian. And then you have like the average American. So, like you just like all the list is like all these like Asian people are beating out every other group in terms of like median household income, and I don't know. I just feel like and a, and a lot of the times too, like um, immigrants like from Africa because I know they did like a comparison recently. I wish I could find out where it is where it says Nigerian Americans are one of the top high earners um, in the United States. So it's like um, I was listening to somebody like I think his name his name is Christian Walker. He has a um, an Instagram and a YouTube channel. And he was talking about the difference between like how culture plays a role into like how things happens for black people that are immigrants and black people that are from America. Like there's um, such a cultural difference um, in terms of like expectations, because I don't know if you've heard this before. Like they were saying that they were saying that when you, if you use proper grammar, like they're trying to say, if you use proper grammar, that should be considered racist. Um, they're saying that um, professors should try to use not like try to lower the standard in terms of grammar to to help 
like minorities or something like that. I'm just like, wait, that doesn't make any well, sense. Yeah, so I, I feel like I would say that I disagree with that because to say that proper grammar is just a white thing, it, that's actually racist in itself. Mm-hmm. And I will be honest with you. Yes, one of the exactly. That I can say mm-hmm. about our black people is that we can also label things white or black. Um, and mm-hmm. we have to be careful with that, that talking, like I, I used to hear all the time. Cause I, um, depending on where I am, you'll hear me talking like a completely different person. Um, I work at my school, mm-hmm. um, for two years, I worked at my school. So answering the phone sounded completely mm-hmm. different to when I was having lunch with my friends. And that was really just mm-hmm. me, that particular personality of myself based on the atmosphere I was in. Some could say that I'm multidimensional mm-hmm. or I'm well-rounded, but you will never say that I talk like a white girl. I would look that black person in the face and be like, there is no such thing. I talk properly. Mm-hmm. And you may hear me use mm-hmm. a little slang if I'm having lunch with my friends. I just understand that different atmospheres require different parts of me. And that doesn't make exactly. me look, look, that doesn't make me one way or another. That doesn't mean that if anything, that I'm even trying to be rude to my people. I feel like if we were to all put in the work that we could um, talk just as proper. Now, that doesn't mean that we all have the same um That doesn't mean that we always have the same, um, what is the word, opportunities. And that's what I mean sometimes. Mm -hmm. I really don't think that everyone, that that Black people always have the same opportunities that white people do. And that sometimes, and this is, and I know that this is an area where me and you tend to not always agree on, but it is Mm -hmm. very well true that if a Black man can get more time than a white man, then it's also possible that a white man will be allowed more funds than a Black man, more scholarships than a Black man, more job opportunities than a Black man, just because of his name. But I think like right now, I feel like it's good to be a Black person in America right now, because I feel like there's so many different scholarships that you can get for just being a minority. Like you can get a scholarship like for being like like African-American, you can get a scholarship for being left handed. Like I feel like white people have less in terms of when it comes to scholarships. And then you have this whole thing about affirmative action. And I, I just I feel like there's certain areas where it's it's where you have black privilege um where it's like you are able to get more things based on your skin color versus the something that a white person would not be able to get like things like like um being accepted into college because of affirmative action or getting scholarships because i was i was grateful and thankful that i was able to get um certain scholarships and stuff um but i just feel like there's so many opportunities out there but I feel like also too, it's like what is preventing people from getting these opportunities? Because I'm like, there's a lot of people that come here that they they come here, they work hard, and they become successful. And so it's like, what are the things that are preventing African Americans, like people that were born in this country, from being successful? When you have Black immigrants that come here and they come here and they work hard, they go to school and they study and they get a job and they're very successful. Because I know Nigerian Americans, they're very strict about. They're edu- Caribbean parents as well. They're very strict when it comes to education. They're very strict, like, oh, you need to be a doctor, you need to be a lawyer, you need to be, like, you know, stuff like that. So I'm just like, they are given the same opportunities of being successful. But I'm like, is it because, like, the Black community here in America is not taking advantage of those opportunities? Like, what's the difference? Because that's my main thing is like, if somebody that's Black can come here and be successful, 
and they're from a different country. But what's preventing somebody that was born here that is black from being successful? Like that's my whole thing. Right. So I think one of the things is that we have um, naturally seen our white counterparts end up growing up successful simply because of the fact that their parents may just simply have more money. And then we have to look really, mm-hmm. really deep into the fact that let's just be honest. We came from a country. We, we, we have come from countries where financial struggles wasn't really our portion. And then we're brought over into mm-hmm. a country where now we have to work for a shack to live in and the scraps of food. And then try growing up with that mentality, not knowing how to budget money. Not knowing how to um, utilize the resources around you because you didn't know that they exist. And then let's just be honest, you could throw all those things into a person's face, even in this moment. But until they are around some people who can help them grow into that growth mentality, it's almost as if I'm still a slave. Because I don't know what to do with this. Where my white counterparts, their ancestors have taught how to build wealth since... They were children. So they grow up now knowing how to utilize the system a lot better than we do. It's not so much about the fact that it may not be available. And in some places, it is. it actually is not. I was talking to a mentor of mine. And a lot of us didn't even know how the census would even benefit us. And she was like, hey, listen, the moment you get a chance, I need you to fill out that census because this is going to allow for people in our community to be able to have access to funds that we usually don't have access to. And this is a black woman. But guess what? Up until now, I never heard a black person say that. And they probably did not know. And um, if she did know about it, it obviously wasn't. The, this is the woman who I've known my whole life. It obviously wasn't resources there initially to help our people. So now these resources are there and she is doing the best that she can to educate as many people as possible. Hey, do your census, especially if you're a black person. So how much funding had been going into white communities and and i'm going to get on even white communities because some will say well how is one community meant for a white person there is even like there is even research and a whole um there's a whole building that is dedicated to understanding how a white community is even a white community like how does that even make sense so what we're realizing is that it's not so much about the money but it's about the resources that white people just had a head start on and we are now just learning Ooh. it. Just yeah, I you know being what? able to get Thomas that understanding Soul. and that knowledge. Thomas Sowell said the same thing because it's like we're running the same race, but um he was saying that yeah, white people had like a head start, but he's like saying that the amount of progress that um that black people have made in this country in such a short amount of time. Oh, yeah. It's it's just absolutely commendable because like you know like how um you had like Black Wall Street and how the black community was prospering before um the Great Society Act um that was passed by Lyndon B. Um, Lyndon B. Johnson, you know, like the welfare system and the welfare state. Because um, Thomas Sowell, I listen to him all the time. Like I read his books and things like that. And people like Walter E. Williams. And they were saying that the wealth, the African-American community was doing just fine. And then when the welfare state came around, like when the, the home um, started, the, the breakdown of the family was a huge thing that had an impact. Like the single motherhood rate now is currently above 70% in the African-American community. Yeah. And he was like, when we're, he was like, slavery didn't even 
hurt the family because he's like, even back in those days in slavery, like the family wanted to stay together. Like even when they couldn't even like get married, the family wanted to stay together. So it's like slavery didn't break down the family, but the welfare oh, state. Oh yeah, did. I believe that because as I said, like I, you can't tell me that in that time that these black men didn't want to protect their women, but they were risking their mm-hmm. life. Now, did that cause some resentment and friction? Yeah, but naturally as a woman, if I know that my man can't protect me, I still love him, right? I still want to be around him. And then you put this situation in place that kind of says that, well, this man broke my heart for whatever reason. We're, this is not about, this isn't even about the moral part of relationships. We have situations in the past where men have cheated and women have cheated as well and they have stayed together. Um, and most times it was for the sake of family. I know we tend to say that that's a bad thing, but that's actually a good reason to not allow something, it, not to say that infidelity is small, but something as minute compared to the bigger spectrum of things, we're not going to allow this to break up family. Now we got some things to work on in connection to trust, but then you have this welfare system come in and say, hey, well, he hurt you anyway. We'll give you some money to ruin his life. I mean, I mean completely <laughs> We gonna put him on child support because that food, those food steps that you're getting, that welfare that you're getting, it's gotta be paid back in some way. And we're gonna get it from him, whether he has it or not. And then now you got the woman saying, well, I can do without you anyway. We don't have to work together no more to pay these bills. I'm leaving you and I'm gonna take care of these children on my own and they don't need a daddy mistake number mm-hmm. one um and then now this man is resenting this woman because his wages are getting garnished or taking his tax returns and the job that he working ain't enough i literally saw a man show he and and you know he didn't have the greatest job but he showed his wages after child support and he had like a hundred dollars to his name and then oh, wow. that is what happens when you see men going to sell drugs because that money's untaxed and then he gets caught by the police and goes to jail comes out with maybe even a felony for drug possession um and now he can't get a job so guess what you gotta do go back and sell drugs and now we got this revolving door And if Mm -hmm. we were to put some more wealth in our communities and maybe even a little more sense that says that, hey, we can make more together than apart. Once again, this is not to say that cheating is right, but it but there would be less that could break apart our families. It would be less that would happen um, to break apart the families, because now we understand that this may even be less about how we feel and more about what we're building and let and you'll be more willing to work through emotional issues when you know that we're building something bigger than even ourselves. We're building something for our children that we had. We're building something for our our friends and our family and our parents and grandparents that we had. So I'm not willing to let this go so quickly just because the welfare system was willing to offer me a thousand dollars a month when I know I can make ten thousand dollars a month with the mentality of the black people today. Because now Ooh, that you, is so important. Yes. Mentality. Like when you mention mentality, so important. Because as you said, um, there we have made, and I think that this would be a great place to stop the podcast because it's a positive place. I'm not trying to even control your podcast. You know that. <laughs> but <laughs> to be honest, we have made a lot of progress. We have made mm-hmm. so much progress over these years because at some point we said, okay, we don't agree on this, but let's come together for what's right. And we are stronger united than we are divided. So now, mm-hmm. okay, maybe during the day you sell drugs, but you believe that you deserve to be treated right. 
regardless of where you go and you want to treat other people right, come on, let's work on something. Let's work on how we can use um, the the very business mindset that you put into selling drugs into starting the business that you always wanted to start. Hey, let's come together and pool in some money and get your business started. Give it back to us after you make it. Let's buy up some of these old buildings in our communities. And, 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 and I have a dad who's a contractor and he'll work when he gets off work to lay out our floor. So now we don't have to pay for that. And together we have made a lot more progress that honestly, Black Wall Street is a perfect example of how when black people came together, we made moves and we made yes. impact. And the one mm -hmm. thing that we have to struggle with on a daily basis is the internal hatred that has been passed down from generations into the white people that says, oh, my gosh, they're doing more than us. And to view that as something that has to be false. And to view that as something that has to be destroyed. As a white person, I would love to even ask a white person this, you know, because I do understand that that, that hate can be generational. Being able to see the very people who your parents owned at some point grow and build. But why do you want to stop that for us? Why, why do you want to destroy our Black Wall Street? Why did you think that it was okay to go and set fire and kill us? We worked hard for that. And that, as a Black people, I think is our biggest concern. That as we do grow and we build, the hate increases. There have been police officers that have literally quit their jobs because they can now no longer use their gun first. But you have a taser. If that person's really committing a crime, why didn't you tase them first? Why was the first weapon you reached for a gun? These are the questions that we have that we don't get answers to. But I think also with that, too, because even just what is going on in the country right now with um, everything that happened with George Floyd, um, things that happened with Rayshard Brooks, like cops are leaving their jobs like left and right. And I just feel like it's very I was even watching um, something on Facebook the other day. It was like this video. And one of the guys that was very critical of whether or not like a cop should pull out his weapon, he went on like a training for like cops and stuff like that. And he was given like different scenarios of how he would react to those situations. And I feel like a lot of the times it's so easy to comment when you're on the outside looking in versus when you're actually experiencing that for yourself. Like when you are actually on the job and you have somebody that's considered a suspect and, um, and you don't know whether or not like you should pull your taser or use your baton or use your, um, use your, your gun. It's like in the moment, cause like people have to realize at the same time too. Cause I, I have a lot of, um, um, friends that are cops and people that I know that are cops that, that I respect is like, they're human beings too. Like, just like everybody else, they're thinking like, I want to get home to my wife and kids. Like, you know what I mean? Like every, t every day that they go out and they're serving, they're, they're thinking, I just hope I can make it home today. And I feel I feel like there's also that thing that there's also that that fear factor in terms of like, I don't they they don't want to lose their life. And at the same time, you have somebody that's a suspect that doesn't want to lose their life. But I also I feel like there needs to be some type of way to have a better relationship between like the black community and between um between cops, because it's like I was looking at um a, a statistics the other day by um, PragerU and they were like saying that um I think it was saying that cops were 18 and a half times more likely to be killed by a, um, a black suspect because 
a lot of times nowadays cops are very hesitant to pull out their weapons because they know that they don't want to either they get in videotape they don't want to lose their job they there's a lot of different factors that are coming into it they're just like like the cop is more likely to get killed versus the um the a cop killing a black suspect because it's like it's like if something happens n- nobody's going to be there to to defend me and like so a lot of times even cops right now they're they're scared to do their job and like if i do something if i actually do my job like if somebody's actually committing a crime and i do something and they end up they end up the person ends up dying like it's gonna be like just horrible so i, I don't know i said th- i don't want to like try to spend time like to find a statistic but i think yeah it was definitely from um prager you but i don't know i just feel like i don't i just don't like this whole entire situation where um cops are kind of like made out to be like the evil the evil um, are to be demonized. Um, like, so for me, like personally, like I've never really had a, a bad experience with the cops and I feel like it's very different for everybody. Like I've never been pulled over before. I've never like, I, I just, n- I've never had a bad experience with the cops before. And so like, I know that there's different people that have um, different experiences, but like for me, like, I don't know, like even just nowadays, like even when I see a cop car, and um or to see a cop i'm just like i kind of like feel a little bit bad i'm like oh my gosh like that's just the way that things are going on in, in this country it's not to say that i don't want justice for people but at the same time i could just kind of try to see things from both sides in a way right and this is actually true this is not to say that there are not cops who actually don't fear for their lives my concern is that i feel like the training needs to be a little more conducive to not just um, what is the word? Not just fighting a crime because that alone is such a a, a scary and 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 heavy mentality to have. That as a police officer, I'm going out in these streets to fight a crime. Compared to I'm going out in these streets to eliminate the possibility of so much crime. So you see people like mm-hmm. Officer Norman, and I don't know if you ever heard of him, but look him up. First of all, he's a white man married to a black woman. Power to him, mm-hmm. all right? He has learned how to deal with the white, to, with with the um, with the black girl attitude, as I like to call it. And it's not to say it's about <laughs> sassy. You know, we got our sassy, uh-huh. and he has learned how to yeah. probably appreciate it. But he put a ring on it, so mm-hmm. but he goes out into different communities and just shows love to the black people in the community. And his community mm-hmm. had the, the smallest amount of a crime rate. So what if some of these police officers were less less focused on sitting on the, the merge of freeways trying to catch people speeding or right on call when someone gets hurt in the community and said, hey, throughout the day, I'm going to just circle through here and say, how to everybody see how y'all doing? Build some relationships. Another thing is that I've seen I, I saw a video from a man um. And he said that actually the a cop's first um a cop's first job is not to fight crime. His first job is a first responder. Mm-hmm. Like an ambulance mm-hmm. or like EMS or a firefighter. So my job is not to fight the crime first. So I've heard stories about men who committed crimes, but they also were hurt. So they got rushed to the hospital to make sure that they stayed alive. Later, they were arrested and charged. Now, granted, it was easier to charge that person, right? Because they're in the hospital. (laughs) They go, now you're on this bed. And once they take the IV off, we're putting the cuffs on. Well, sir, you committed a crime. Very well so. But if my foot is on this man's neck and he's saying I can't breathe, my first responder is supposed to kick in. Mm-hmm. Why'd I let this man die? 
Those are the questions that black people sometimes have. Why did you use first responder um, approach to a white person and a, and, a, and a crime fighter method to me? But I think also too, like to take into account, because like for me, I kind of look at everything on the an individual um, basis. Like, so that guy that was like on George Floyd's neck, Derek, is it Derek Chauvin? Like, he's just like, I don't, there's just something wrong with you. Like if yeah. you can literally just be doing something that that's that evil and you don't show any type of remorse. Like, I feel like that's almost like the definition of evil. Yeah. Like when you do something that's bad and you show absolutely no remorse, like that's just, um, is, is that, is that what you call like a sociopath? Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you just had absolutely just no remorse. And like for that one, like I feel even though like there were like a whole bunch of riots and things like that pertaining to George Floyd, I feel like for the most part, everybody in the country agreed that it was something terrible that he did and that he should get sentenced to prison. Right. Like there are other cases where people like they're kind of like they're kind of were divided on it. But this was one of those cases where it was like everybody agreed like this was wrong. This never should have happened. Even cops are like, yeah, this was wrong. This never should have happened. Like whatever race anybody was, they were like saying, yeah, this was wrong. This dev- definitely shouldn't, shouldn't have happened. And it's like, it's one of those cut and dry things. It's like people are like, yep. Um, there's nobody that was, that, that was defending it. And it's like, like, I, I don't, it, it's, it's, it's been like a tough, I don't even know how long it's been. Like, it's been like a while since, that happened like with all the, the protests and then you have the rioting and all these different things that has like happened in the country since then. Right. And but this isn't to say that, that, that white people are just all bad because what I will also say this George Floyd thing, it even enraged some white people where they were like, Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. Like I, there was a situation where it was a man, it was his birthday. Okay. Was an mm-hmm. Older man. He was a grandfather. He was driving his grandchildren around, just spending time with him on his birthday. He obviously matched the description of someone who had just committed a robbery. So the police officer pulls him over like, Hey, you look like this person. Da, da, da. Get out the car. Mm-hmm. Like not ask him his name, anything like that. Get out the car. So he gets out the car and they're literally trying to arrest him. He's like, wait, I don't even know anything yet. These white people so happen to see it. And they built a human shield around this man. The officers were not go near them. And in our minds, the first thing that happened was like, wow, you have some people of the Caucasian descent that um, really want to see us protected. There's a love here for humanity. But why in the world is it that when this man was by himself, you were willing to rough him up. But then once these people formed a shield around him, you didn't go, you didn't even go near them. And sometimes what we feel as black people is that there is this, there is this unspoken, unconditional love for white people that says mm-hmm. that we will always give you the benefit of the doubt. But then when it comes down to us, we're automatically assumed to have done something wrong and we are guilty until proven innocent. And that is scary to have to walk down the street when a cop goes by wondering if on this day will I lose my life. Because I think too, of, oh, sorry. No, I was saying like what kind of plays into that? It's like the bad apples ruin it, ruin it for yeah. everybody else. So it's and like it you does. have black people that do commit crime and it makes it harder for other black people because you have those that have kind of given us like a bad rep. So even though you have like so many people in this country, hardworking, like um, black people, and it's, it's the people that are in and out of prison, the people that are selling, the people that are doing the bad things are making it 
bad for everybody else. And then you, have you know what I mean? Good Caucasian cops who really are trying to 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 make the, make the the communities a better place may actually be working, but because you see so much of it broadcasted of of police brutality, now we just automatically either get afraid or angry the moment we see a cop. And now you have this one bad apple, such as the killer of George Floyd, making it hard for just about every Caucasian cop in the country. Mm-hmm. And this is and and it, it's scary and it's sad because. One of the ways that we will be able to achieve justice is is to be united. After we as a black community get united, I am praying because we're going to create wealth in our communities. We're going to create wealth within our families and our generations to come. We are we um, we have the. The, the strong mentality and the business mentality that our ancestors had to be able to know how to be able to, to pick enough cotton that day and grind out in that hot sun to get it. But now we also have the ability to say that I'm not going to do anything just to build wealth for you. I'm going to use that energy to build wealth for myself now. So we, I feel like we have a promise, but the time will come. For us to be able to say, I'm also going to work positively with the Caucasian people that do have my best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. There is a hardened heart in our Black community. And my prayer is that the people within the Caucasian community, regardless of um, statistics, regardless of what the police brutality, regardless of what the broadcast say, regardless of what the news says, regardless of redlining, will say, we're going to do what we can to earn your trust back. And we as black people will give them the opportunity to. Yes, because that's that's one of the main things. Like you can't have any change if like you won't open up yourself up to change. It's kind of like we have to be able to see um, each other as human beings first yeah, and then kind of like take it as an individual case by case basis. Cause yeah, there are evil people yeah. in this world, but there's so many other great people also in this world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that would be a, a good way to kind of end up the, the podcast on a positive note. Um, you know, it's just like us having to, the, the black community having like to come together and to rally around each other and, and to, like, um, what are some things that you think, cause I know you kind of like said some things like, so what are your top three things? Like if that you think would help the black community to, to advance even more and to do better in, in America? Um, I think doing your research and understanding statistics is important because if we're only doing research from the perspective of what we've experienced, then we're just simply building on that. Um, mm-hmm. maybe even allowing yourselves to remove the heaviness of feeling like you are, you have this target on your back by maybe taking in that story of those white people who made a human shield around that man. And they later found out that he was not the person who committed that crime, that hate in that mm-hmm. moment, they came together. And if I can find myself around like-minded people who are simply just trying to move further and get better in life as well as I am, and to be open to the risk of yeah, maybe you do get hurt. That's like a friendship. That's like a relationship. You have to open yourself up to the risk of getting hurt for the possibility of 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 being in love, for the possibility of being treated right, for the possibility of progressing and moving forward. So research, opening your heart mm-hmm. up to positive possibilities and not hardening your heart as much. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that's going to bring us some unity. And one of those things are tangible the research. The other things aren't tangible. The other two things are not tangible. It requires self-reflection on a regular basis. 
And if we self-reflect regularly, you may find, and me being in school, you know, I've come across different different ethnicities, different cultures, different kinds of people, different religions. It's allowed me to be a little more open to something that may not look like what I do, but that doesn't mean it's against me. Um, Mm -hmm. And we can't change the world, but we can change our community by simply trying to do something that will get us to a better place the next go round. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, by all means, black men, go ahead and become an officer if you can. Um, yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> and be an advocate and a voice for us and understand that it's scary. It's a risk. Justice is a risk, but we rooting for you. We are rooting. Black people, go be judges. I know it's a lot. It's take, if you need a scholarship, email me. I went to school. I, I can help you get some scholarships. I will send you links. I want to see us grow in that area. Yes, it's a little bit harder. We got to do a little bit more work. But if you're willing to take an extra 20 minutes and that's something that you really want to do, we do need more of our people in the justice system as well mm-hmm. to balance mm-hmm. out some of the imbalance. Mm-hmm. And oh, wow. That's a lot of great. That's a lot of great advice. So the top three ones you say in research, research, then opening up your heart. So it's number two. Well, research, um, having a positive mindset. Having a positive and mindset. And opening up your heart. And then opening up your hearts. Oh, wow. That's a lot of great advice. But before we end up the podcast, I wanted to get what is your social media like? Where can people find you on social media? So my social media is my first name and my last name, Dot Singer. So Adriana Miller dot singer that's also my email i am serious adriana miller dot singer at gmail.com you will email me and i will send you all the resources i've learned in school of how to get scholarships i'm almost done with my associate's degree and i'm going to be working on my bachelor soon and i don't plan on having to take out a loan until i'm working on my master's because there's so much out here and it does take a little bit of work it does take a little bit of research it's not going to be as easy because you are a black person and because of the stigma but it is possible it is possible. All right. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. Yes. That was a really great. <laughs> All right. I think that's a great place to end it off. Yes.